Welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition with licensed nutritionists and dietitians from Nutritional Weight and Wellness. We explain the connection between what you eat and how you feel. Stay tuned for practical, real-life solutions for healthier living through real food nutrition. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just Well, welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition. I'm Darlene Kavis, Certified Nutrition Specialist and a Licensed Nutritionist. You know, today we have a great show planned. We do. You know, as we're taking a fresh new look at Alzheimer's disease. Yes. So if you are concerned about your memory, or if you have a family member with Alzheimer's disease, you'll want to stay tuned. Right. Because we have a nutritionist and an author, Amy Berger, joining us by phone to discuss her new book, the Alzheimer's antidote. Hmm. Yes. Well, hello, Dar. Uh, good morning, yes, Leah. Good morning. Yeah. I like. I'm Leah Wetzel. I'm the co-host today of Dishing Up Nutrition, and just like Dar, I am a certified nutrition specialist and a licensed nutritionist, and I'm also a mom of two wonderful children. Yes. Uh, Oliver, just turned five, and I have uh, a little little baby, Lucy, who's one years old. You know, <laughs> my hands are full, right? Yes. So as a mom, I have experienced firsthand like how being up throughout the night with feedings or changing babies or sick kids or whatever that may be, I know what it's like to feel sleep deprived uh, more so than I'd ever experienced in my life. Before and you're kids. done with it, aren't you? We're getting there. Yes. I'm, I feel like we've turned we've turned a corner with with our little one. Um, but I know what it's like to not get a good night's sleep. And ultimately, with that sleep deprivation, have memory issues and foggy brain. So I really know uh, a part of this, the importance of a good quality night's sleep. So, you know, you talk about uh, not getting enough sleep. Yes. Some nights you get how many hours? Well, well you, you talked about this as we, know, were we were walking to the studio. We were talking about a rough stretch of, yes. that ended up me getting a cold. Um, so, you know, I would say on average, I'm, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting close to that, you know, seven, eight hours a oh, night. Good. But, you know, on a rough night, it could be two. Oh, and, and then there's no memory. No, no, no. That's, that's tough. It's tough to function. Yes. Yeah. So today's show is brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness a company providing nutritional counseling and education for people with both physical problems and memory issues. Yes. You know, food really makes a difference for your body and for your brain. Exactly. Exactly. We say it over and over, don't we? We we really do, yes. And we believe it. We do believe it. (laughs) I want to give you a little background on our special guest today. First of all, author Amy Berger has a master's degree in human nutrition and is a cert- also a certified nutrition specialist. You know, as a nutritionist, she has looked deeply into how nutrition and lifestyle habits affect the brain and memory. And that's new, I think, for somebody to really take a deep look at how food affects your memory. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And Dar and I heard Amy Berger speak at the Weston A. Price Conference this fall in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And she was a great speaker, wasn't she? It was she? great, yes. It was, I, uh, I really enjoyed her presentation. We were also very impressed with her knowledge, and she has, uh, has discovered what she has discovered to help restore people's memory. You know, Leah and I both thought when we heard her speak, thought, 
this lady perfect. must be a guest. Yeah, perfect for a show. And because, you know, all people all over the world, not just here in Minnesota, but all over the world need this information to slow down the epidemic of Alzheimer's disease. Exactly. You know, and I, and I know you, our listeners, will have questions. So if time permits... We will take questions, and if you do, if you do want to call in, uh, best time to call is during our break time to get on the line. Our phone number here in the studio is 651-641-1071. So I know Amy's on the line. Good morning, Amy. Welcome to Good morning. Dish- Welcome to Hi. Dishing Up Nutrition. It's Hi. really a pleasure to have you join us today to speak about such an important topic. In your book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, The very first sentence you wrote said, Alzheimer's disease, like so many other degenerative conditions, is highly influenced by factors over which each of us has control. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yes, very, very empowering. And Amy, what did you mean when you wrote that we have control over these factors, either support of our health or, you know, two, on the opposite, rooting our health? Well, hi. Good, good morning to you. Good morning. Yeah. Good, good morning. You can hear me? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, but I, I'll get to the question in a second. I just really quick want to say that um, it's such a thrill to be on your show because I have been listening to your show for quite some oh, time. Oh, you have? And, um, That's awesome. I have. A long time ago in my pre-nutrition career life, I had a very long commute, and podcasts were kind of my lifeline of sanity. And yeah. I found your show, and it was so refreshing to hear nutritionists talking about the real thing. That's <laughs> just, awesome. Nutritionists who got it. It was so nice to listen. So Thanks, I, just, I just never dreamed that I'd be a guest one day. Oh, hey, that's hey, awesome. Hey, was that um, the reason you went into the field of nutrition after listening to our podcast? <laughs> well, I had I had inspiration from a lot of sources. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in regards to your question, I mean, if we're talking specifically about Alzheimer's or yeah. the brain, you know, Talking about factors that we have control over, it's really interesting that when we talk about things like type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease or PCOS or, you know, so many other chronic health issues that have really exploded in incidents over the last few decades, we take it for granted that there's a role for diet and lifestyle. Nobody even questions that anymore. We take that as a fact, like, oh, if you have type 2 diabetes, of course you need to change your diet. Of course you need to change the way you live. And yet, when it comes to Alzheimer's, we pretend like we're just clueless. We have no idea where this is coming from. This couldn't possibly, it couldn't possibly be a dietary and lifestyle problem the same way all of those other modern chronic conditions are. Right. You know, we, we almost dismiss out of hand that that's even a viable possibility. Yep. Right. Um, so when I say that we have control over it, you know, to the extent that Alzheimer's disease and general cognitive decline are related to a lifetime of certain dietary and lifestyle factors, then we do have control over at least a large extent of this. There is a small genetic component, and there's other factors that go into it, but we we do have control over what I think are the most powerful factors driving this. Right. You know, it's so interesting, Amy, when you say that, you know, and just hanging out over the holidays with friends and family... (laughs) You know, I start to wonder how many listeners truly believe that they have control over their health, especially their brain health. Yeah. You know, I think what happens, and this is so true for so many different conditions, people just want to pop a pill 
and have her everything get better. Yeah. So what about popping a pill? Is there medication or a pill that works for Alzheimer's? I mean, I know they've been researching, but have right. you found so, anything, Amy? Um, yes and no. There are medications on the market for Alzheimer's disease, but they do little to nothing to actually slow the progression of the disease or prevent it, let alone reversing it once it's already taken hold. So, yeah, there, there are medications, but they're, they're, I hate to say it so bluntly, but I'm going to tell the truth. They're useless. Yeah. Um, no, they are. Oh, yes. They are. I mean, they're, that's what it seems like. You know, that's true. Well, so yeah, I think. Why? I mean, I mean, why do people, why are they being prescribed then? Well, I think some of it is to placate the, um, the patient and their family. You know, it, it gives them comfort. Like, oh, okay, you There's know, we've got this medicine. Yeah. yeah, we've got this medicine. We've got a, a plan of action now. Even though it's not a plan of action, the plan of action is here, take this pill. Right. And by the way, you know, the standard of care for Alzheimer's disease is that there is no standard of care. Yes. The standard of care is get your affairs in order, Mr. Smith, and prepare for your decline. Right. Like, it's, it's really unfortunate, but I think, I think the pills are given because, you know, they may, they may have a very, very small effect on slowing the progression, but that's at, at best. And maybe that's, that's even do. placebo effect. Who knows? It could, it could be. It could be placebo. And I also just think the doctors may themselves feel so powerless. Yes. And they're like, there's they're literally nothing else they have to offer. They right. have no other strategic intervention. So they have to give this medicine, even though it doesn't really do much. Right, right. And so this is why this talk today is so important because, there, like you said, there is stuff we can do and that has to do with the diet. You know, and as nutritionists, when we're working with people and there's not a medication that will work for their health conditions, it really allows us to really dig in deeper and look and expand our, our search for the, the cause, you know, such as looking at food choices that people have been making. So, Amy, you know, when you wrote your book, and I bet it took a long time, didn't it? <laughs> uh, you look deeper into the biochemistry of the brain, and now you have a whole new understanding about how to help people restore their memory. So we were, I know we're going to have to take a break yeah. here, but we really got to be prepared for that when we come back for that. Think of the, think of the things that you suggested in your book for people. Yeah, so, sounds so. good. All right, so you're listening to Dishing Up Nutrition, and today we are discussing the new treatment for Alzheimer's disease with Amy Berger, nutritionist and author of The Alzheimer's Antidote. The antidote isn't a medication or a supplement. It is eating real food. Real food. We'll be right back. There are some things we wish for you to do what everyone else can do. Hop in your car, go to work, slip right into a movie seat. Now there's a perk. Buy cute jeans right off the rack. Dance at the next wedding to Love Shack. Play tag with your kids and hear them say, that was the most awesomest day. Walk your dog, jog, or both just because you can. Comfortably fly coach all the way to Japan. Be there on graduation day, especially if it's yours and you got your MBA. Meet your greatest love and ride off into the sun. This is your life. Go live it. You've only got one. If you think you've tried everything to lose the weight that's keeping you from your best life, think again. Learn the new science of weight loss in the Nutrition for Weight Loss program at Nutritional Weight and Wellness, on-site or online. You can do this. We'll help you. You're not alone. This is a promise. 
not just a poem. Join us at weightandwellness.com. Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. Did you know that one of the causes of restless leg syndrome is having a low level of iron stored in your body, you know? Or did you know that fatigue, weak legs, and crying easily can be a sign of low potassium? Mm. Mm. If you want to know more about minerals and the body signs of deficiency, we now offer an online class called The Magic of Minerals that you can watch and learn just right in your own home. So go to our website, weightandwellness.com, to sign up and get the information. So... So back to the topic at hand, Amy, so with all of your extensive research for your book, you know, we've talked about, you know, pre-break that we we know that medications are really not the solution to the answer for Alzheimer's. Um, And so with your research, with your book, what did you find out about diet and brain health? Well, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease is... Diet and brain health. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, where, where do you even start? Right, 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 right. Well, just go into explaining more in detail, looking at the brain chemistry. Yep. How, what's affecting that brain chemistry that's causing Alzheimer's to occur? Yes. I guess that's basically start there, Amy. Right. So Alzheimer's disease, I like to call it a metabolic problem. Yes. Um, just like and- the other metabolic problems that we can have. Right, like metabolic syndrome, like any of these, you know, sort of newfangled problems that are popping up. And um, like our, Amy, Amy, like our listeners would think of metabolic problem as being type 2 diabetes. Yep. That they could relate to. Yep. So you're kind of talking in terms of. That same category of. Yes. Conditions. Yes. Okay. Now I won't interrupt you again. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you're, you're the expert. So, um, it's. It's it's really fascinating because they actually call Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes. Yes. Sometimes they also call it diabetes of the brain or brain insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And those three phrases are all over the medical literature on this disease. I mean, the scientific papers are flooded with that phrase, type 3 diabetes, brain insulin resistance. So if anyone out there listening is, is affected by this condition themselves or has a family member who's affected, if that's just the first time that you're hearing that, shame on your neurologist, shame on your doctor, um, because this isn't new. Right. This, is, this has been in the medical literature for decades. And so when, when I say that this is a metabolic, I mean, so right, right off the bat, when we hear type 3 diabetes, we know right away there's at least some connection to glucose and insulin. We right. may not know exactly what. But something is going on with, with blood glucose and insulin regulation. And um, Alzheimer's disease really is a metabolic problem. And by metabolic, I mean it has to do with the way the brain gets energy. Yes. And, and you know, think about, like, it's almost as if your brain is tired. Now, think about what happens when you get tired. You get clumsy. You make mistakes you don't normally make. Um, and... So what do we think happens to the brain when the brain doesn't have enough energy? The same thing. We start to make mistakes we don't normally make. We get forgetful. Our personality changes. Um, but, you know, the thing is, this doesn't happen overnight. Right. No, nobody wakes up all of a sudden one day with severe Alzheimer's. This is something that, that worsens over the course of years and in some people decades. And um, it's, 
it's really unfortunate because by the time somebody is showing signs and symptoms, this disease process has been in place for so long. And I think, you know, when you're younger, your brain is more robust and it's compensating for this, this energy deficit. So it's, it's, I said it has to do with the way the brain gets energy. It's almost as if it's a fuel crisis. It's an energy shortage in the brain. Right. And at first, your brain is able to compensate. So even though this problem is occurring, you don't know because your, your body and your brain are making up for it. But eventually, when it goes uncorrected for long enough, it reaches a tipping point where you're not able to compensate. That's when you start showing the memory loss and the cognitive problems. But by the time those are apparent to you and to the people around you, you're already kind of in a severe state because you've already crossed that threshold. And I think that may be part of why this disease is so difficult to treat and so difficult to reverse. Because by the time you even know there's a problem, it's already been going on for so long. You know, I think one of the things, Amy, you know, you mentioned the fact that that neurologists and people have not been talking about it. I think it's the same thing with type 2 diabetes. People talk, I mean, doctors talk about it, but to get people to actually... Uh, change and to realize that it is a problem with what they're eating, that they're eating too much sugar and too many processed carbohydrates. And they, you know, it's like how to convince people to cut back on that and and have them understand that the next step is it's going to start affecting their brain. Right. The first step is affects other parts of their body. You know, it's so interesting to get people to be, realize the importance of this. Yes. You know? The long-term effects of their now eating habits. And so I can understand why doctors are constantly looking for a medication because that's how people think in our country. They don't think food first. Yeah. They always think, you know, isn't it interesting? Yeah, I mean, it's partly how we think, but I think it's also, you know, Food is different from something like an infectious agent, some type of bacteria or, you know, some type of virus where, or even food poisoning where you get sick immediately. Right. You have an immediate reaction with something like type 2 diabetes or Alzheimer's or, or metabolic syndrome. These are things that build over time. Yeah. You know, it, it's long-term cellular damage. It doesn't, if, if you ate a donut and immediately got sick, yes. you would have instant feedback from your body. But yeah. if you don't get sick until 20, 30 years down the line, it's much more difficult to connect your symptoms with the diet that you've been eating all that time. Exactly. Yeah. If you kind of go back now and you kind of talked about the brain not getting fuel, no energy because... There's something that we we know, there's something that's called insulin resistance yep. in the brain. Kind of go back, Amy, and explain, you know, why the glucose or the sugar is not getting into the brain to feed the brain and give it the energy. Right. So when we said that Alzheimer's is like a fuel shortage, an energy crisis in the brain, where that really comes from is that under normal circumstances of people eating a regular type diet, glucose is the primary premier fuel for the brain. And the problem in Alzheimer's, it's it's multifactorial. There's a lot of things going on. But the major, major factor in the Alzheimer's brain is that neurons, the brain cells, in affected areas of the brain have lost the ability to metabolize glucose. Mm -hmm. So that's where that sort of, that's like starving for energy comes from. They've basically lost the ability to burn any fuel. 
And um, the brain is an extremely energy-hungry organ. You know, even when you're laying on the couch and you feel like you're not thinking and you feel like your brain is turning to mush, your brain actually uses a ton of energy all the time. Um, We hope so, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some people, more than others, Mm -hmm. (laughs) use energy, but um, it's... At any given time, your brain is using about 20 to 25% of all the energy in your body. Wow. So when there's any disruption in the fuel supply, either in, in, this, in the supply of fuel to these cells or in their ability to use this fuel, there's going to be major, major, you know, negative implications on, on cognition and on brain function and memory. And that's exactly what we see in Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, every, everyone asks, well, why, why is this happening? If mm-hmm. that's the problem, that these cells can't use glucose, why? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the million-dollar question. I, they haven't even really identified why, but one of the reasons could be that, you know, the metabolism of, of glucose, when it's excessive, is damaging. I, I, I dislike the word toxic, so I don't use that, but it can be damaging. It causes a lot of damage at the cellular level. Mm-hmm. And I think... Once your brain gets to a point where, you know, for so many years we've been on these very high-carb diets with not sleeping enough, not getting enough activity, all of the different things that affect how the body uses glucose and insulin, um, once you get to a point where so much cellular damage has accrued, I think the brain is actually doing itself a favor by preventing itself from using any more glucose. It's actually turning off the glucose spigot and saying, I don't want this glucose anymore. I'm already so sick and so damaged. Right. Um, so I, I think that's why. And some of the pathology that we see in Alzheimer's disease seems to reflect that, that this may actually be a, a protective measure and a defensive step, and we're just sort of looking at this disease from the wrong angle. It's this drowning is, this is in the, glucose, the brain's basically. way of tell, it's sending us a message. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting, Amy. I think that... People don't realize that when they're out and they're having a big plate of pancakes for breakfast, that that's actually glucose sugar that they're flooding their body with. And there's so many of those situations where people are eating excess amounts of glucose or sugar and they don't even realize it. That's that's the kind of the sad part of it. The thing we Um, often educate about on this show, all the hidden sugars and things. Yes. You know, or if they're sitting down and they're having a big bowl of cereal, they're right. still getting a lot of glucose. Right. And right. it's so hidden in all of our foods these days that it's kind of shocking, I think, when, when people start realizing that. Right, right. All right, well, we'll have to continue this discussion after this break. You are listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. During the holidays, we had many clients take our Nutrition for Weight Loss program. As you listen to some of the class members' comments and the challenges that they made, think about how you did over the holidays. Here's some of the things that they did uh, say uh, they stayed on plan during the holidays. Number one, uh, one of the participants said, "I planned and cooked snack, uh, took snacks, so I didn't get hungry." And here's one that I thought was kind of interesting. This is a, one of the clients said, "I packed." And took snacks to the Wilds game. So I didn't order chips and a Coke. Right. Another client said, I kicked my Arby's addiction and it feels so good. Here's another one. I started cooking real food with my new Instant Pot. Yeah, that would be a good Christmas gift, right? Yes. (laughs) 
I went to bed early. I love this. I went to bed early, so I got eight hours of sleep, and I didn't have cravings the next day. We are pleased to say that by by focusing and eating on real food, these people managed to feel great. And at the same time, they were able to lose weight during the holiday season. Which is unbelievable. Right. We'll be right back. So welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. Some of you may be wondering, how are those Nutrition for Weight Loss clients able to stay on their healthy eating plan during the holidays? Yes. That's a really good question. Well, some of the things that they did is the different class members challenged each other and... They were able to stay on plan. That's great. Being Count, part accountability of that. is very helpful. And being part of a group. Yep. So what was the result of their healthy eating? Do you know what? They had fewer aches and pains. Mm-hmm. That's great. They had a better memory. And they had fewer cravings. They had better moods. And they lost some weight. Yeah. So if you want any or all of these results, you know, check out our Nutrition for Weight Loss plan. You know, you can call 651-699-3438, and you can ask any question you want. Or you can go to weightandwellness.com, and you can sign up there, or you can get more information. And actually, we have a special going on that's called Go Real in 2018. And it's all about eating real food, getting real support, and getting real results. And you get to save $50 off of the plan and you know when you pl- you get 12 classes? Yeah, you do. Plus you get two one-hour individual consultations with nutritionists like Leah, yes. who's on the line yeah. right now today. So, you know, it's a great deal. It is a really great deal. And you get healthy. Yeah. And you lose weight. Right. And, you know, that's yeah. the best. Yep. Okay. It's so a great we can go program. back. Yep. We can go back to our topic here. Yeah. So before break, we were talking about the... the um, the the connection between Alzheimer's disease and um, an overabundance of glucose. Um, I really like what you had mentioned earlier, Amy, about the new classification of Alzheimer's as type three diabetes. I think that right there paints that picture. So what we want to get into next is really we, we know this is happening. So what is what is going on? What is happening on a cellular level? When somebody has established this insulin resistance of the brain? That's a good question, well, right? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. And um, it's, we, we don't know everything. Right. You know, certainly there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions. But what we do know so far is that um, one of the major, major risk factors for Alzheimer's is chronically elevated insulin, mm-hmm. what we call chronic hyperinsulinemia, you know, your, your blood insulin is too high too often. And I, I want to emphasize that because, you know, when we say type 3 diabetes, or in fact, some of the people at the greatest risk for Alzheimer's are type 2 diabetics who are using insulin. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the, so when we say type 3 diabetes, people might be thinking, well, you know, my, my grandpa has Alzheimer's, but he's not diabetic. Or, you know, my, my wife has Alzheimer's, she doesn't have diabetes. We're not always talking about the blood glucose. We're talking about the insulin. Because there are millions, without exaggeration, millions of people walking around 
who have a perfectly normal fasting blood sugar, even a perfectly normal hemoglobin A1C, which I'm sure your audience knows, but that's yeah. kind of a longer-term average measurement of your blood sugar. Like a three- to four-month um, measurement, yep. Right. And those could be totally normal, but the reason those things are normal is because sky-high insulin is keeping them in check. Right. And in so many chronic modern conditions, not just Alzheimer's, but gout, hypertension, PC, uh, PCOS, DPH, all kinds of other problems are actually being driven by chronically high insulin, whether or not your glucose is high. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's why this is being missed a lot. This is why I think we could catch Alzheimer's in much, much younger people if we would start measuring insulin. Why aren't we doing that? (laughs) Well, I just think it's just not, it's not recognized how important, how powerful insulin is. You know, everyone just thinks insulin is a blood sugar hormone. Well, helping to regulate blood sugar is one of many, many things insulin does. And it's actually one of the, I almost want to say it's one of the least important Mm. when you look at everything else that insulin does. Um, So it's just not, it's not known. It's not a standard part of routine blood work the way a fasting blood sugar is. I think one um, of the things, Amy, that after we heard you speak and also after reading your book and seeing how important it is, it's like Leah and I both said this morning before we went on air, we're asking our clients yes. to have insulin tests taken, yes. getting their doctors involved with that right, right. away. That's great. The classic profile of what you described, like clear insulin resistance you know, the, the, the abdominal fat, you know, the conditions that are associated with um, high fat, you know, insulin, high blood sugars, but they're normal. And it's like kind of like, well, this doesn't really quite make sense. That seems to me to be the missing link of something that needs to be addressed. And, and I, you know, I think one of the other things that you said, and it, I know this was in your book, which was also sort of a surprise to me. You know, after about 40 years of this, you think you know everything, <laughs> but <laughs> well, you don't. <laughs> there's new research coming out all the time, Dar. Yeah. You know, that actually that people that are diabetics, type 2 diabetics that are on insulin, because this, I have a brother that has, is right there, and yes, it starts to affect their memory more than if they weren't on insulin. Yes. Which is interesting. It's an over overabundance of insulin again yes. in the brain. Right, right, right. Well, right. yeah, the, the, the really interesting thing about the insulin is that in Alzheimer's disease, what seems to happen is um, in the periphery, which is the, the, the part of your body that's not your central nervous system, not your brain and the central nervous system, has too much insulin and the brain itself has too little. Right. Um, mm-hmm. For some reason, that insulin is not getting into the brain. And, um, you know, a lot of the brain does not require insulin to use glucose properly, but some of it does. Right. And, and besides just using the glucose, insulin has other signaling um, effects in the brain so that if you don't have enough insulin in the brain, this will affect your cognition and your memory. And they've done studies where they actually administer insulin to Alzheimer's patients via a nasal spray. So mm-hmm. it's basically getting directly into the brain and central nervous system, and they have improved cognition. Right. So when we get a little bit more insulin into their brains, they improve a bit. But the answer, say, like same with type 2 diabetes, the answer isn't to give them more insulin. The answer right. is to help their body and brain become resensitized to all the insulin that's already there. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So... 
Oh. Where, how, go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I was just going to say, so So we know this is well-established, and we know that this is part of the, the factor. So how can we fuel these brain cells if they're not using glucose properly? What else is, is you highlighting in your book, what else can our brain cells use for energy? Yeah, this is such a huge point. I mean, this is really the crux of everything. If Alzheimer's disease is essentially a fuel shortage in the brain, mm-hmm. Then wouldn't it be wonderful if, like, the, and, and it's a specific fuel shortage of glucose. Yes. Right. Cells have lost the ability to use glucose. Wouldn't it be great if there was some type of alternative fuel? Like, if the brain were a hybrid car and it right. could run on some other type of energy, then that would solve some of the problem. I mean, there's still going to be a lot of other things to be addressed, but that's striking right at the heart of the issue. And the beautiful thing, the fascinating thing about this illness is that even though these struggling, starving neurons have lost that ability to metabolize glucose, they can still use ketones. Right. Um, there's this sort of like backdoor alternative energy source that can still nourish these cells. Now, somebody of very, very older age with very severe disease, that's, you know, they've been declining for, for a number of years, it's going to be more difficult to, to get their brains kind of back on track, like the the older you are and the more severe the disease, the, the more difficult it's going to be for those brain cells to take up even the ketones, but they will still take them up and use them. And, of Great. course, the younger someone is and the less advanced yeah. the disease, the, the better effect we would expect. We'll need so, to get Amy, into this a little bit further. Oh, okay, we'll I'm gonna, take a break. But we'll... I want to po- pose a question sure. to you before we go on break. Okay. Um, some, number one, because people have never heard of ketones. Yes, yeah, so we need to get into that. Yeah. We need to know, <laughs> okay, what are ketones and how do you make ketones? Right. Yeah. So, we'll so how do you turn your brain back on? Sounds really great. All right. You, we are listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. We understand memory problems as Alzheimer's disease are a devastating problem. There are a few things people fear more than cancer, with the possibility exception of neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's. We know that food and lifestyle habits can make a difference. Nutrition therapy is so much more than weight loss. Amy Berger's book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, clearly shows us that we need to know what foods are and what the right foods are to fuel our brain. Give us a call at 651-699-3438 and set up an appointment with one of our nutritionists at Nutritional Weight and Wellness to learn more. Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. If you have any memory problems, I encourage you to pick up Amy Berger's book, The Alzheimer's Antidote. You know, Amy also writes a blog. She does. And you can find that at, I think it's, how do you say that? To it. A, to it Nutrition. To it, to it Nutrition. It's T-U-I-T Nutrition.com. So next week, tune in to hear Cassie and Marcy discuss the body signs of common mineral deficiencies. You know, if you like our podcast, please write a review on iTunes so more and more people have the opportunity to receive all this really good, valuable yes. information. I like what you said there, Dar, about if you have any memory problems, as, as we're kind of trying to hit home in this, in this yeah, catch it before. show today, yes, is that the importance is prevention. Prevention is worth a thousand cures. So yeah. if we can get people to start to change their diet, you know, before their problems setting in, um, Trust me, I'm hitting those fats very hard <laughs> to keep my brain healthy. Uh, it's important. It's important mm-hmm. for all of us. So. so, Amy, ketones, what are they? Right. So, ketones are um, 
molecules, I guess, uh, that are produced when either you're on a very low-carbohydrate diet or your insulin levels are very low. Um, there's some other ways to produce them, too, but that's the main way. When we remove the vast majority of carbohydrate from our diet, the body is forced to transition to running on some other kind of fuel. And the fuel that will transition to running on is fat. And mm-hmm. ketones are produced as a byproduct of a fat-based metabolism. And just, just to clarify real quickly, if anyone out there listening is a type 1 diabetic or has heard about ketoacidosis or ketones being dangerous, that's a different situation than the nutritional ketosis that we're talking about, the safe, beneficial dietary ketosis. Right. So I like to put things in very practical perspective. You know, rather than having a bowl of oatmeal or a bowl of Cheerios or one of those cereals in the morning for breakfast, you would probably say have a couple of three eggs, maybe some bacon for the fat, probably cook it in, you know, cook the eggs in butter, have um, maybe a little bit of spinach, cooked in bacon fat. Yeah. That's kind of what you're looking at versus the cereal, right? Right. I mean, we don't we don't want to jack up that insulin. We don't want to jack up that glucose. So, you know, you want to eat in such a way to keep the carbohydrate low enough that your body continues to run on fat and produces these ketones that are such a great fuel for the brain. Right. So when you talk about the body running on fat, what are you talking about? Are you talking about a teaspoon, a tablespoon, two tablespoons or per meal or snack? Or what are you thinking? Oh, well, good question. Um, there's not really a set exact amount that anyone must eat. When, when I say running on fat, it's not just the fat in our food. It's our own stored body fat, right. you know, which is why very low-carb diets are so great for obesity. Um, because you'll you'll just turn to fat as fuel, so... It's not so much that you have to, I mean, definitely more than two tablespoons if, if it's throughout the day. Yeah. Oh, yes. Not at, at one particular meal, but um, it's, it's more a matter of keeping the carbs low than it is gorging on fat, but um, there's certainly no need to fear fat. Like you said, you cook your eggs in bacon fat or coconut oil is even better. Yeah. You know, coconut oil has these special fats that are more easily converted into these important ketones. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, olive oil, good good quality lard or, or tallow from pastured animals. I know that might be crazy to some people, but, yes. you know, I'm sure some of your audience knows that these, you know, traditional healthy fats that humans have eaten for thousands of years are just not not the ills that they, you know, that they tried to convince us they are. Yes, and you, you do a really great job in your book of kind of highlighting the specifics of all that, of what we should be eating for keeping our blood sugars low, insulin low, promoting ketones. So it's, it's a really helpful reference. But, you know, it's interesting, Amy, what you just said is olive oil and maybe butter or lard, but you didn't say anything about soybean oil. Yeah. Or vegetable oil or canola oil. And then, go ahead, you were going to say something. Right. So, um... Those types of fats are not the greatest choices. Um, just biochemically, they're not very stable. They can become damaged. And the way that those oils are manufactured is that the, the, the sites and aromas, like the signs that would tip you off to the fact that those oils are damaged, are actually removed during the manufacturing process. They're bleached, they're deodorized, they're mm-hmm. refined. 
You're so damaged. That, right. But you don't know because the the foul odor that would tip you off or the cloudiness that would tip you off are are gone. Right. Um, now, I, I'm not as militant as some people. I don't think you have to avoid those entirely because it, it's almost impossible unless you make every scrap of your own food from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's virtually impossible to completely avoid those. I think keeping them very, very low. And, and, and it's very easy to do when you go on a low-carb diet because by default, you'll be eliminating a lot of the packaged processed foods that contain the soybean oil right. and the corn oil and the cottonseed oil, you know. And you just don't don't buy a jug of vegetable oil to cook with at home. You know, mm-hmm, use more mm-hmm. stable fats. And um, if if every now and then you get a little bit of those oils from some salad dressing, or if you go out to dine at a restaurant, it's really not that bad. You just you don't want to make them the predominant fat in your diet. Right. So, Amy, as we talk about this and we t- think about our listeners, what do you think? Is there something that you have found working with clients that they always ask you? You know as far as changing their diet or what they see when they do? Well, the interesting thing about the brain, specifically when they do a low-carb diet, is that one of the most commonly reported, quote-unquote, side effects is that um, people have sharper thinking. Yeah. The brain fog disappears. The, the cobwebs get cleared out of the brain. People feel like they just have sharper thinking, that, you know, clear, better ability to focus, better attention. Um and, th- and those are in people who are relatively healthy. So imagine what could happen to somebody who's actually, you know, very uh, impaired right. with their cognition. How much of a difference might they notice? Exactly. And I, I don't want to overpromise. I want to be clear. This type of research is in its infancy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on the mechanisms at work, based on the, the biochemistry and physiology of what's going on in this condition, I really believe that this stands the greatest chance of being a nutritional intervention when there are otherwise n- no effective strategies for this. And, and we talked about medication earlier, and I, I forgot to mention that not only are most of the me- medications that are currently marketed ineffective, there was actually w- at least one, maybe more, but at least one that didn't come to market at all because when they were doing the clinical trials, the people on the medication were doing so much worse than right. the people on the placebo. So this, this condition is really really difficult to treat. And so, um, you know, and this certainly a low-carb diet, a ketogenic diet. It's not a magic bullet. Right. Um, this isn't going to change overnight, yep. but this is absolutely worth trying. And if somebody was to give us a try that has some sort of degeneration, memory loss, or Alzheimer's, how long should somebody try to give this a, a go uh, before they say yes or no uh, mm-hmm. for them, if this is the diet that would work for them? That's a very good question, and I think it varies. Um, yeah. It's probably going to vary, again, depending on how old somebody is and how severe the disease is, how advanced it is. Right. Um, the younger somebody is and the less severe, the quicker they're going to notice a difference. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it's not going to happen overnight. You do have exactly. to be in it for the long haul. Yeah. Um, some, some people may notice a difference within weeks. But some people, it could it could take three months, four months. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I think you would start seeing little pinpricks of improvement. You know, maybe enough of a change for you to think that there's some type of effect going on. And the, you know, by trying it, they have absolutely nothing to lose. Right. 
It's all real right. food, yeah. and it's healthy. You have nothing to lose, and it's not. It's not just diet. I mean, we, we don't really have time yeah. to get into yes. everything else. But in my book, I, I do talk about the other lifestyle factors. Sure. So you know, if if you change the diet and nothing's really happening, there's a lot of medications that our seniors are on that have an effect on the brain that you may want to explore mm-hmm. whether those medications are appropriate or not. Um, you know, getting good sleep. There's there's other things that work. So yep. the diet yep. alone may not be completely effective for everybody, but it's, it is the, the most important um, and most powerful place to start. Amy, thanks so really much for being you. on the show for us. It's great. This, thanks for having me. It was yeah. a treat to talk to you. And it's a, you know, it's a great book. It's The Alzheimer's Antidote by Amy Berger. And, you know, our goal on nutritional weight and wellness is to help each and every person experience better health through real food. Yes. You know, it's simple, but it's a powerful message. Eating real food is life-changing. And Leah, thanks for being on with me. Thanks, Dar. Thanks for listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. If you enjoy this podcast, please share your favorite episodes with a friend or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. The content and opinions expressed are those of the hosts or presenters. They are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Product statements have not been evaluated by the FDA.